Hello and welcome to episode 17 of Magic and the Other Guy. Once again, Kevin and I are sitting outside my home here on the banks of Lake Wiley in Charlotte, North Carolina. And Kevin, I have to say today, is absolutely beautiful. Still water. If you like geese, I think today is possibly going to be a geese-heavy day. They've been around a lot this morning. I counted over a dozen out there uh, floating around (laughs) wanting to get in on the act. Yeah. As ever, I never know what we're going to be talking about, Kevin. So start us off. What is our topic of conversation for today? Well, going back into your career, uh, I think it'd be interesting for the listener to hear about some of the uh, pit lane mishaps, Uh, especially since you were part of one of the most famous ones of all of uh, Formula One racing. Yeah, famous or infamous, I suppose. I'm not really sure. Either way, either (laughs) way. I'm not really sure which one it is. Yes, it's, um, there is no question that um, working in the pit lane is a very dangerous place to be, and it's sometimes often overlooked not just by the audience and the fans and enthusiasts of the sport which are sitting in the grandstands or at home watching the sport on TV, but often the mechanics and the engineers, and to an extent the drivers, can easily forget just how potentially fraught with peril life in the pit lane is. You've got extremely fast race cars and typically very close surroundings, and that can lead to all sorts of problems, yeah. but. I would say yes. My memory of the biggest accident or biggest peril that my teammates and I fell into uh, was the uh, fuel fire in Hockenheim in 1994 when Jos Verstappen's car exploded because of um, a stuck valve in the fuel rig. And uh, we only lost a relatively small amount of fuel in that fire. It was something like it was something like a couple of seconds of fuel flow is all it was. But when you're using high-octane racing fuel, it, it, I mean, it just went up like an exploding bomb. Were you watching that race? Did you, can you remember that happening? No. Well, I, in fact, I don't even think we had good coverage where I was living at the time. But, uh, yeah, just, I've seen it in the, you know, the coverage that you can find on YouTube and stuff like that. Yes, those photographs of um, uh, Stevie T from LAT Phot- Photographic was working with our team throughout much of the 1990s. I think... Um, I think LAT had a contract with Benetton to supply all the photographs that we would use for marketing, etc. throughout that year. And um, so just by complete coincidence, I guess, Stevie T happened to be down in the pit garage when the fire happened. And um, he caught some incredibly dramatic photographs of that event, as did other photographers that were around the pit lane. Um, But Stevie T's photographs have really... You know, they so well captured that dramatic moment just when the fuel exploded. And uh, I've used one of those photographs on, on um, one of my books, on uh, The Mechanic's Tale, which what isn't actually, it isn't me on the jacket cover, but it's a, an incredibly dramatic photograph of Paul Seabee, who was one of my colleagues at the time, who was um, absolutely engulfed in flame. Yeah, I remember you telling me who it was on the, yeah. on the picture. That photograph really brought great fame to, not that he ever needed it, because he's a tremendously good photographer and well-known anyway, but great fame to LAT Photographic. And I think that photograph has been very well used throughout the years to document that event, yeah. Oh, definitely, definitely. Yeah. And it seems like I, I read somewhere that, weren't y'all just at the beginning of that particular season issued fire protective equipment? Well, it was, 94 was the first season that refueling had been reintroduced into the sport. And uh, it hadn't, we hadn't had fuel uh, refueling in the sport for about 10 years. Uh, but in the interests of making the racing more exciting, 
and breaking up the on-track action. And criticism throughout Formula One, really throughout all my 30 plus years in the sport and well beyond has always been, oh, cars can't overtake in Formula One. We need to do this, we need to do that. We need to always come up with a new way of encouraging the drivers to overtake or whatever it would be to spice up the racing action. Uh, if you remember, 93 was the end of the technology battle in Formula One, if you like. So fully automatic upshifts on the transmission, fully automatic downshifts on the transmission were banned. Active suspension was banned. Traction control was banned. So all the great um, ABS was banned. All the great technology battles came to an end at the, at the end of 93. Again, in the interest, according to the FIA, if I remember right, to just put more of the racing back into the hands of the driver and away from the car. I think a response really to the incredible domination of Williams and, and Mansell and Prost with the FW14 in 92 when Mansell took his driver's championship and in 93 when Prost returned to Formula One uh, having um, sat out the year in 92 and that FW15 it was an Adrian Newey designed car with Patrick Head and the rest of the genius engineers and designers at, at Williams, but it was just, it was just remarkable piece of engineering. And I do remember, you know, my my colleagues and I and colleagues from other teams on the on the occasions that we would get to stand alongside the FW15 from Williams would look at this car and just scratch our heads and wonder what what are we racing against? It seemed to be in an entirely different league of its own, mm. you know. Uh, so as a response to that, the FIA decided that all the technology or the vast majority of technology would be removed from Formula One cars for 94 uh, and we would reintroduce refueling and another way to spice up the action and introduce more strategy into the, into the sport. Yeah. So it was, it, it was uh, the first time for 10 years that refueling was introduced and um, there was, if you remember, there was actually two fairly dramatic fuel fires that year. One, we, one that everybody focuses on was was our was Benetton one with Jos Verstappen at, um, at Hockenheim. Yeah. But there was also a Eddie Jordan uh, team with Eddie Irvine as the driver in Spa caught fire. They had a fairly dramatic refueling accident in the pit lane at Spa. Was that before or after yours? It was after. Okay. Yeah, it was after. And uh, I do remember, actually, we were in the pit lane refueling our cars, and I can remember I used to operate the rear jack, and I remember operating the rear jack, so I'm looking sort of right towards the end of pit out, and Jordan were right at the opposite end of the pit lane to us, or pretty much they were, a long way down. And I remember lifting the car up as we were doing a refueling stop and looking down and just seeing that boof of fuel from the other end of the pit lane, thinking, oh, not again, not again, not again. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and too, this was already a year where, I mean, by that time, everybody was kind of uneasy after Imola a yeah. few weeks prior. Yeah. So, you know, with Ratzenberger and Senna, of course. Yeah. So I think anytime something like that happened, everybody's thoughts just went to the to the worst immediately. And fortunately, it turned out, you know, okay on both of, the, both of those incidents then. Yes. I mean, I, if I remember correctly, I think the Benetton press release suggested that no one was seriously injured in that accident. Um, but my memory of it is actually, I think six, at least six of my colleagues were flown by helicopter to the hospital in Hockenheim and stayed in overnight uh, for attention for burns. And also 
breathing difficulties from inhaling the powder from the extinguishers that were set off at the time. Yeah. I don't blame anybody for that because you've got to get the fire out. You know, we understand that. And again, it just highlights just how potentially dangerous it is in the pit lane. But um, we weren't wearing breathing equipment. Only the refueler himself, Simon Morley, uh, was operating the refueling hose that day was wearing, if I remember right, only he was wearing breathing apparatus. <clears throat> and so the rest of us were just breathing normally. And when all of that powder was being released, obviously some guys took it into their lungs and they didn't, um, they didn't take well to it, of course. So they spent a certain amount of time in hospital. Um, I'm not sure about the Jordan accident. I'm not aware of anybody going to hospital or receiving medical attention after that. It was, it was a much more controlled if there's such a thing as a controlled accident, it was much more controlled or brought under control a lot faster, the uh, Jordan pit lane incident as the Benetton one was. I don't think anybody from Jordan went to hospital. I may be wrong. I, I'm sure the um, the history books of Formula One will tell us whether that's true or, or not. But uh, yes, it does, it does highlight just how potentially dangerous every single pit stop can be mm -hmm. in, in Formula One. Yeah, I noticed... Um when you watch, you go back and watch the video of just the, the incident, say on YouTube or, or what, um, it looks like was all were all of you issued those personal handheld trigger? Um, yes, those. Did everyone yes. have one because I saw them being used. Yes, I know everyone had one. Yes, that's exactly right. Um, and they were used, but of course they were so relatively small in comparison to the big Marshall held fire yeah, yeah. extinguishers, halon extinguishers. But we did we did have those little extinguishers, and. Um, they were they were used to effect, but my I mean it, this is a story. I mean we're talking about the '94 season now, and in more general terms, of course, this is the backdrop for my first book, uh, Life in the Fast Lane, was all based on a month by month diary of that year. Uh, and I'm not using this as a as a as a as a time to promote the book, but just as a backstory to that. When I began writing that book in '94. Of course, none of us had any idea what was likely to unfold before us. How could we possibly have known that? But so I, I, would, I just set out to record an average year in Formula One on a month-by-month -month basis, starting in January and describing going back to Benetton after the winter holidays and starting to work on the new car. And then I thought, well, let me explain a little bit about the testing process and the build of the new car process. And as soon as I started writing that, Different events just kept happening one after the other, which would ultimately turn this this year into the most incredible, in many ways, most tragic seasons in Formula One, but certainly one that was filled with dramatic highlights for one reason or another. Um, and, and I was just so fortunate to be in a position that I was in the pit lane working with Benetton in the year when Michael Schumacher was about to win his first world championship as a driver. Seeing these events one after the other and thinking, well, what we've just had to live through in Imola, for example, yeah. and then something else would happen, and then something else would happen, you know. So, um, so now, in hindsight, of course, that book, and again, I'm not using this as a promotion, but that book has become a very widely read account of exactly what happened throughout that year and it was a complete coincidence that it unfolded as it did because I, I so very nearly started writing that book in 1993 All right. but for one or two other reasons I decided to delay that and started in 94 and if I'd have written about the account of Benetton in 93 it would have been a, a, a far less interesting account so 
it worked out very well for me in terms of my exposure towards the world of publishing. But I would never have wished those events on 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 anybody. You know, it's just it was just the most turbulent and tragic and dramatic season. It's, those events will stay with me forever. I still, honestly, Kevin, now I still find myself waking up in the night dreaming about it. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do. Yeah, yeah. Dramatic times. Yeah. Well, another one uh, that you know kind of became kind of known as the next year in '95, the the Spain. Incident. Yes. I'm sure you can expand on. People probably don't know that one as well, but it's definitely an interesting one. Yeah, and whatever it is snowy, whatever it's snowing or is cold, my shoulder muscles and uh, shoulder joints, elbows, they still ache to this day from that from that event. So what happened in the Barcelona event, I was, again, I've just said I was operating the rear jack, and during a pit stop, Johnny Herbert was driving the car, and this most definitely, this is nothing to do with Johnny at all. It certainly wasn't Johnny's fault. Uh, because as soon as the driver is given a signal to leave the pits, he will leave the pits. It's, he can't. The driver is incapable of seeing what's really happening behind oh, yeah. him. Yeah, that's what he should do. There might not be four wheels on the car, but when they say go, well, he's that, yes, hit and, that accelerator. And that is absolutely a classic example of when it becomes a team sport and the driver, the mechanics, the engineers and the car all united for three or four seconds together. Uh, in a pit stop uh, and things can go very very well or very wrong and of course it's a bit like very few people write good reviews of restaurants but folks are always very keen to write bad reviews of restaurants when they've had a bad experience and I, I say that because occasionally we 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 in Formula One in the world of Formula One have a bad pit stop but but so few folks you know, prepared to write about the incredible endless series of brilliant pit stops exactly. that happen. It's always the bad ones that get the attention. That's just the way it is. That's human nature. Um, so, yes, during a pit stop in Barcelona in 95, um, the left rear wheel was just slightly slow on going on. Like the, the guy that was doing the wheel nut up was just a little bit slow. And my attention was caught holding the rear jack by what was happening on the left rear. Just, I mean, absolutely just as I was letting the jack down. I thought, oh my goodness, he's not, he's not finished. So I was just about to lift the car back up so that um, Max could finish tightening the wheel nut up uh, when um, the chief mechanic um, lifted the brakes on board. And that was, of course, the signal to, for Johnny to go. And, you know, when you're dealing with so much horsepower in a Formula One car in a split second, bang, oh. the, car was, the car was away. And um, the, the way that I was holding the rear jack, we had a what was known as a quick-release rear jack mechanism where the, the jack would actually purposely uh, break, if you like, break in two between the lifting point and the, and the handle, which would allow the car to hit the ground maybe a quarter of a second sooner than it would be if it was a, you know, a fixed jack. And, um, yeah, when, when um, Mick Cowlishaw, the chief mechanic, raised the board... Johnny reacted to that and hit the throttle, and uh, it dragged me not very far down the pit lane, but the jack went down the full length of the pit lane, but I was dragged for probably, I don't know, 10 feet or so, but I just remember feeling my, my shoulder muscles and uh, my elbows just go, snap! Yeah. You know, yeah, and I thought, well, that's it. It's uh, like trying to hold a jet jet fighter it, with a it's exactly, uh, rope. It is know. exactly like that, and again, I, I put absolutely no blame. I, I've seen I've seen you know several reports saying, oh, well, Johnny should never have left if the pit stop wasn't done. Johnny had no choice in this. He'd seen the pit board 
Uh, Mick Cowlishaw lifted the pit board and then the driver took off. Oh, yeah, that's his job. Yes, just, and that's when it goes, he goes. Yeah, that's what happens. But um, it is a very fraught experience there. And of course, we see all sorts of things, you know, wheels bouncing off down the pit lane. Again, that was another thing that happened at Imola. Not only did we lose two drivers, but we also had a bad accident in the pit lane um, when a, I think it was the right rear wheel. And again, my memory's a bit vague on this now over the years because it's well over a quarter of a century ago. The right rear wheel came off, I think it was Michele Alboreto's Minardi in a pit stop and it bounced down the pit lane. And of course there is a lot of mass in a rear wheel of a Formula One car with oh, the yeah. weight of the rubber and the, and the rim itself. Bounced down the pit lane, it bounced through the Benetton pits if I remember right and slammed straight into the Ferrari team. And, and the car hit. So Michele is now trying to sort of desperately control the car without a right rear wheel on. So the car, I, I remember, there are no pit lane speed limits at this time. It was a result of all of this that brought in the, spit, the pit lane speed limits. But at that time, cars were diving into the pits and exiting the pits at full racing speed. And so Michele was desperately trying to bring his car under control, missing a rear wheel. And uh, he slammed into Nigel Stepney, who was my former chief mechanic at Benetton, the guy that gave me my job in breaking Formula One. At the time, he was chief mechanic with Ferrari. And the car hit Nigel, and then the wheel bounced into the Ferrari pits. And I think one of the Ferrari mechanics broke his leg, if I remember right. And then it bounced, took another bounce, and hit the Lotus mechanics a little bit further down. It's one of those incidents which, to a large extent, was overlooked by the media because of the loss of Senna on that Sunday afternoon. But, I yeah, mean, quite. You know, there was, there was, it was an incredible time. I don't know, I don't know how we escaped more accidents like that, frankly. Especially my mind goes back to Monaco. And in the days when I was racing at Monaco, um, the pit lane was incredibly narrow. There was no real pit garages built back then. Yeah, we talked about that yes, on the previous right. episode. So, so yeah. we only had a very we had a very narrow pit lane and the pit boxes were only big enough to hold tires and tools, so you couldn't get the cars in there. So during the pit stops at all tracks, but this specifically I remember this at, at Monaco, we would sit always outside during the race on four tires just in case of an unscheduled pit stop. So we were instantly ready to go. After all these accidents, of course, the rule was changed and the mechanics, and it's the same to this day, have to remain inside their garage until the lap on which their car is coming in to keep everybody out of harm's way as much exactly. as possible. But up until 94, cars were diving in and out of the Monaco pit lane at full racing speed and we would sit there on the tyres waiting for our guy to come in if he was going to come in. And uh, you would, I mean, you could physically feel the air pressure from the cars as they boom, flash down at the side of you doing 100 plus miles an hour, literally 24 inches away from you. Just now, I mean, at the time you do it, you don't even think about it. You yeah. know, oh, this is Formula One, this is what... Well, you're, you're younger and crazier too. Younger so. and crazier and, and to a large extent <laughs> invincible when you're young, yeah. Exactly. But um, boy, oh boy, thank goodness that those rules were changed. And But there is always the element, Kevin, yes, there is always the element for something terrible to happen in a Formula One race. Yeah, yeah. Those, like I say, that the, we're it would have been the well, just well, we just turned into 2021. But you know, we're we started this podcast a couple of years ago, or a year and a half ago. It would have been the anniversary of Hockenheim, the 25 25 years since then. Yeah, so, it's incredible. I mean, some, I remember some people did touch on it, and we we t chatted about it when it happened. 
you know, that same month. Yes, poor old Jos Verstappen. He was he was he was injured because of the fuel that ran down inside his visor, if I remember. Yeah, um, if you watch the video, they're they're uh, flushing him out with water yeah. to get him in into the into the garage. Yes, that that fuel sprayed from the nozzle, and it ran down inside Jos's helmet. And I think, if I remember right, Jos had lifted his visor to be able to get a better view, see what was happening around him, you know, which is fairly typical, just to get a bit of airflow during the pit stop, just for a couple of seconds, and he lifted it up just enough that the fuel ran down inside, and uh, then bang, that's when it ignited. Yeah, I'd have to watch the video again, but I, and it turns on the angles that you can see and what you can see happening, I, I, I take it he completely got himself out. Or was there no, anybody, if I was remember, there, anybody no, there that was, yes, that was, there was working the buckles and everything? Yes, I, I think Greg Field, uh, who was our race team coordinator, fundamentally the guy that um, was in charge of making sure the mechanics had tickets to get on board their flights, this sort of thing, you know, to kind of look after the, uh, the travel side of the race team, made sure we had enough hotel rooms booked in that, uh, in that department. But Greg Field, I think, helped put the fire out around Yoss by, and he wasn't part of the pit stop, as such, but Greg was standing at the side with a big halon extinguisher and jumped into the fray when that happened and, and, and Greg really did a tremendous job of saving Yoss from further burns, I think. Good, good. Yes, yeah. it was. Like I said, I'd have to look at it again and, and depending on the angles of the camera that they show, like you know, when you yeah. see it on YouTube, what you can see, I but can I, remember. I, I remember, I mean, thinking about this now, and again, it's something that I, I, I wrote about in great detail in Life in the Fast Lane, is and, and it's not just my experience. I've, I've, I've read more of this since Hockenheim, and many people experience the same thing, that in moments of great stress, when something like that happens, or, or a car accident, or whatever it would be, or a motorcycle accident, or these things that occasionally happen to us all, that idea of time slowing down to almost like a you know click, 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 click of different oh, yeah. seconds. It, I mean, I, I just remember that pit stop, in my memory lasted for about an hour and a half mm -hmm. and it actually happened it actually lasted for about a second and a half before i was on fire and rolling on the floor and the, and the mclaren mechanics actually put me out but i remember holding the rear jack and uh, so i was on the rear jack and my uh, good friend and colleague kenny hankhammer was operating the front jack so he would lift the front of the car, I would lift the rear of the car, the other mechanics would change the tires, Simon would refuel the car. And so Kenny and I had got into this routine of we would kind of just glance at each other to make sure Kenny would kind of give me a little nod to say everything's okay with the front, I would give Kenny a little nod, everything's yeah. okay with the rear, we'd know we're okay, we'd watch for Simon to, re, uh, to take the fuel hose off and take his one step back clear of the car and then both of us together would, would snap the jacks, release the car and away Michael or Yoss would go. And I remember on that occasion, I looked at Kenny at the front, he looked at me, and everything seemed perfectly fine. And then just out the corner of my right eye, I don't know what made me do it, I just saw like a little, it was like sparkles, almost like sparkles of, of sunlight on water. Oh, yeah, reflecting yeah. on the, on the, on the on fuel. The spray. And I just remember, I thought, one of, the, one of the marshals must be spraying water on the car. Like, you, you know, just these mm -hmm. things going through your mind. In fractions of a second, I remember thinking, oh, what, what on earth is he doing? You know, and I'm, my, then I started to sort of just turn my head towards Simon, who was holding the refueling hose, and I could see that spray of fuel, like a, a shower of fuel, come out of the nozzle. And I remember thinking, wow, I cannot believe that that fuel hasn't 
bang, exploded. Mm-hmm. And it just, and it did. As I just, I was, I was having that final thought. My goodness, we've survived it. How did we avoid this? Boom. And what happened? What set the fuel off was actually it was the heat from the right rear brake rotor was enough to catch it. I think it was the brake rotor. Then the exhaust mm-hmm. caught it. If you look at that, it's sort of in frame by frame. If you knew that in slow mo, that's what seemed to have set it off. And um, yeah, so then I just remember it going, Woof! and uh, I was holding the I was holding the jack at arm's length, watching the fuel ignite. And again, this is all happening in fractions of a second, oh, yeah. but it seems like it's taking. Oh, yeah, your forever. narrative. It's taking in forever. your head. Is, yeah. is right there. Yeah, absolutely. I'm I'm holding the jack at arm's length, and fuel is now sprayed all over me, over everybody else as well. But in my particular account of what happened, I remember fuel had sprayed all over my arms and down my overalls. And I'm holding the jacket arm's length, still with the rear of the car in the air. And my arms just woof, burst into flames as I'm holding the jack. And I remember thinking, gosh, my arms are on fire. It reminds me of Oh a, my. Yeah, yeah, this is a bad thing. It's a, it reminds me of a Dali painting of his famous burning giraffes, where he'd got, you know, giraffes in a scene and Dali, great surrealist artist, had painted the giraffes, all the necks of the giraffes were all on flame, all aflame, on fire. And I'm holding the jack thinking, gosh, I look just like a Dali painting. That's kind of surreal. And then, why are you thinking these things? You know, why is it taking this long to process all this information? And then I remember thinking, my mind, my mind went back when I, to, to when I was a very young child at home, and we used to have a coal fire in the lounge. And I, I remember, I, I can only have been five or six, but I, I, had, I was doing some painting, and I had some brush cleaner or something, you know, like turpentine or something, just a little egg cup full to clean my little paintbrushes. Yeah. And when I'd finished painting or playing with paint that day, I don't know what made me do it, but again, I was only five or six. I threw the paint cleaner onto the fire. Oh, really? Okay. Do, do not try yeah. this at home. <laughs> but it's only I a very. We can sp- all predict how this is yes, going. Yes, it was only a very small amount. I mean, it's just a little egg cup full of, of turps, and it just went woof like that. And I remember it. Sc- Scaring the bejesus out of me, thinking, "Wow, you know." And fortunately, there was no one in the in the in, in the lounge that was going to tell me off. So I, I never told my parents what had happened. And it was just like a half second, woof, fuel, and it had gone with the turps. And I remember thinking then. So my mind then flashed back to that incident, thinking, "Don't panic. You've been here before." Don't panic. You've been here before. You remember the Terps incidents when you were a kid. You got away with it, right? Don't panic. Panic doesn't cure anything. So I'm still holding the the handle, thinking these things. And then I just remember that the blast of the exploding fuel. Then it just threw me back, and I let go of the jack. But I can't really remember that happening. Mm-hmm. I just I, I can't remember that. So then I'm rolling on the ground. Um, and I remember rolling over, and every time I was, I, I faced the sky, I could still see flames. And I remember thinking, well, this is not good. You better keep rolling. Try and roll again. And I rolled over again, and I could still see the fuel burning. I think, well, you better keep going. And this happened again, but the whole incident is like a second and a half. Exactly, yeah. These long, sort of drawn-out internal monologues that's happening, it's the most remarkable thing I've ever experienced. Then I remember that the McLaren mechanics ran down the pit lane and jumped on the top of me and were patting the flames out. And um, I just remember 
you know, using language we won't use here in our podcast, advising that the McLaren mechanics should probably take my gloves off as fast as they could because I could feel my hands burning. And so they were trying to rip the gloves off me uh, to stop my hands burning. <clears throat> and they did a tremendous job. I mean, the, the McLaren team, I can't say I owe them my life because I don't think my, my life was in danger. But they certainly saved me from serious burns. Yeah, and that's yeah, I think I, I think so, and I'll, I'll always. Um, I did write them a, a letter of thanks afterwards, actually, to Ron Dennis, thanking his team for for, for helping me, which was uh, which was tremendous of them. Yeah. So then they, they put me out, and then all of a sudden, as the McLaren mechanics jumped on top of me and started patting the flames out, I just remember it was like, and and real time started up again. Like everything was compressed back into real time. And I just remember sitting up and gasping for breath. Yeah. So, like, seeing the rest of the team yes, scrambling like saying, and everything. What, what has happened? What's happened? What's happened? But that expansion of time, I've never known anything like it before. But as I say, you know, perhaps you've experienced something like it too. But in, in car accidents or in well, plane accidents or anything like that. We talked about it last, last episode when my Chevelle was hit. Exactly. I, I still remember having a cognizant thought in the time it took me to spin around 180 degrees. I had a full thought go through my head. Yeah, so I remember you saying, well, this is going to cost. This is going to cost. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. The next thing I know, I'm facing the other direction and rolling to a stop. It makes me uh, think... Uh, or appreciate that um, obviously in times of great stress and when the body is fighting for survival there are there are things at work within our mind that we are completely unaware of really right something lost in the genetic code that tries to preserve the, the body as much as it possibly can when it's at its most vulnerable oh yeah yeah well there's just the, the you know you don't throw your hands out when you're about to fall somewhere you're just instinct that's, does, that's and another you classic involuntarily example. do it, you know, exactly which that. is sometimes a bad way to go. You want to tuck and roll as best you can, but you can't outthink your uh, automatic uh, response. Yes. And that's another example, too. We kind of go back a couple episodes, and we used to take bikes, and we would just go airborne and hope. I still remember many times when you're in the air and knowing the landing is not going to be the way you predicted it and that'll last forever too because you're like it's coming and i know i'm coming down hard yeah so and i'm sure you know the drivers when when drivers in my my little world of formula one when formula one drivers have an accident i i, I actually i do remember uh michael schumacher talking me through one of his accidents i think it was at, in adelaide one year not the coming together with Damon Hill, but I think it was a practice accident in qualifying or practice. And I remember him describing the slow motion effect of him realizing that the car is going to slam into the tire barrier and having very similar memories to what I've just described. So I could see what was happening. I remember taking my hands off the steering wheel and I put my hands in a cross shape across my chest, uh, trying to keep them inside the cockpit, but away from the steering wheel so I didn't break. Now this is Michael describing this. And again, this is all happening in his case at 200 plus miles an hour as the tire barrier is looming towards him. Yeah, And still having the time to dissect fractions of a second and see what was happening around him. Yeah, it is an amazing, uh, amazing thing to think about. Yes, but I will say that's the accident, the refueling accident is the one where I think my body and mind was fighting for survival. It recognized that at one point, in one fraction of a second, it, it you know, who knows what could have happened. But I say that because the Jack incident in 95, I never had that same expansion of time and everything breaking down into sort of, you know, the clicks of a slow playing film, like click, 
click, click, this is happening. It, yeah. just, it just flowed. It just happened. But well, I just the other one you had, a, you could see the spray, and you, you started thinking something's different, whereas yeah. that one was probably an instantaneous, unexpected yank. So. Yes, but those odd thoughts of my arms are on fire, this reminds me of a Dali painting. I don't know where that thought process comes from, because I just remember in great deal, and I remember when that was happening, I could see that painting in front of me, and I could see the giraffes, and I could see the, the fire on the giraffe. And where is all this stored? Where is it coming from in fractions of a second, you know? Held, held in the recesses of the mind. Yeah, held in the recesses of the that, mind. That file was pulled very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, but yeah, <clears throat> 25, 30 plus years later, whatever it is now, you know, um, uh, I still find, like I say, when it is a snowy day or it's a rainy day, and you know, um, uh, those of us that suffer with arthritis, either in knees or the back or the wrist, um, I, I can definitely feel uh, exactly what happened in the Barcelona pit lane through my shoulders and uh, Did you continue? Any pit stops after that, or did another another no, uh, Jackman take over? No, I I, I I still carried on doing it, I'm, and I remember um, after that pit, pit lane incident in Barcelona, um, Ross Braun, who I, I still have a good relationship with, and I've always had great respect for him as a as a technical director and a great strategist. But we also had a very good personable relationship as well. I mean, he was obviously multi-levels ahead of where I was in terms of the structure of Formula One. But Ross had a great respect for my writing. By that time, you know, um, I'd already written Life in the Life in the Fast Lane in 94. Yep. And Ross could, I think Ross already could sense that my future was not going to be working on the cars for much longer. And Ross, I think, had an interest in in writing and perhaps writing his own accounts or his own, his own memoir of his, his time in motor racing. So quite often during the car rebuilds in the pit garages, wherever we were in the world on a Saturday night, Ross and I would usually end up having a coffee and a chat for 30 minutes about writing and literature and what books we were reading. And so I had a very good relationship, personable relationship with Ross. But I do remember after that uh, Barcelona pit lane incident, Ross asked me in to come up to his office and we sat down and had a long chat. He said, look, you know, if you want to continue, you know, we'd love you to continue. If you want to stop, we perfectly understand that you'd want to stop. There's a frightening incident. And he said, but if I, if I were you, Steve, he said, if I were you, I would carry on to get over it and just put it behind you and keep going. Otherwise, it'll stick with you for the rest of your life. Uh, and, I, and I did. I took his advice and carried on and carried on with that. And I'm pleased he did. He, he gave me some great advice. Um, yeah. Dear old Ross, he was a... He was a he did wonders for Benetton, and I'm so pleased that he went on to do wondrous things with, with Ferrari, and now doing great things uh, with, with Liberty Media now, in this stage of his career, still in the pit lane. But uh, yes, it, it was a pit lane incident, which we've, we may have talked about before, in Brazil in 96, a practice pit stop which finally uh, put me out altogether of, of, of Formula 1 in terms of working with a race team, and that was a practice pit stop. We were all very exhausted. I was absolutely exhausted through the testing program uh, that we'd had going from 95 to 96. And I just went to lift the car up. I, I can't remember if it was a Lacey or Berger. In the, well, it was a practice pit stop, so it wouldn't have been either of those guys. It would be one of the mechanics sat in the car uh, operating the steering wheel and the brakes. <clears throat> but I just remember something in my lower back going, you know, when I lifted the car. And, I've never felt pain, pain like it, quite frankly. And uh, you never wish to again. No, no. And, and so I recognized that that was, that was the universe telling me, Steve, your time in the pit lane as an F1 mechanic is coming to an end. 
go home, get better, work with the test team, but work towards your next great adventure, which we've talked about, you know, was, was my desire to, to write more about the sport and move down to uh, Cognac in France. So it was another pit stop incident which finally did that for me. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I think you would have preferred less, a little more subtle indicator, but or a little less painful indicator. But yes, it put you on a different path. Well, yes. Ending up where we are today, really. The, yeah. the universe works in strange ways, right? I think I'm a big believer in the fact you have to, you have to listen to what the world is telling you. Sometimes those signs are subtle. Sometimes they're not so subtle. Um, We've all been there where the universe, for whatever reason, works to put us into a particular position. It will occasionally lead us to a crossroads or a fork in the road, and we have to decide if to turn left or to turn right or to go straight on. And um, All things considered, I greatly enjoyed my time in Formula One working in the pits. There are things that happened to us, to Benetton and to my colleagues and to members of other teams that I wish had never happened. And I've seen things and witnessed things I wish I'd never witnessed and never want to witness ever again. But these things form who we are. And again, the world will tell us all when it is time to stop and do something else. Talking of time to stop and do something else, I think we've come to the end of our time today, haven't we? I believe we have. Yeah. I enjoyed that. Good, good. to, good yeah. to reminisce about about that yeah good times and bad times in formula one but nothing is ever just perfect we have to take the good with the bad that's life isn't it yeah, yeah. yeah. many years later we can reflect on it and get the details yeah. directly from the source <laughs> all right gentle listener thanks for joining in this conversation today kevin you're gonna say bye i'll see you next time all right take care bye